This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. It's a sprawling and complex world out there, so every Friday we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend, or at least try to, anyway. On this edition, bodies of fallen soldiers continue to pile high in Ukraine. James Cleverly's taken a trip to China to rebuild relations. And BRICS, what is it, who's in it, and why should we care? I'm Chris Jones, and joining me today, I'm very happy to say, is broadcast journalist extraordinaire, Laura Making assured um, <laughs> Hello, Laura. How uh, are you? Hello. Uh, very kind introduction there. I'm all right, thanks. Good. What have you been covering recently? Uh, a lot of stuff domestically. So first up, air traffic control system failures, taking down the UK's airports, it seems, got kicked mm. out by security at Heathrow. Kicked out? Kicked out. Did, they didn't like How me there. that? Um, it was a bit embarrassing. I'd stopped off for a, a quick cup of tea at Nero and some security guards came up and said, what are you doing here? I see you've been approaching people, speaking to them. Yeah. Yeah. That asked sounds... me to leave. And then popped over to see uh, the new queen, Queen Camilla. Lovely. Well, you've been very busy, haven't you? And we've been keeping you busy with some news. Shall we uh, Shall we get into it? Sure. Fantastic. Well, let's start with Ukraine because there's a lot to talk about here. Um, we're about a year and a half into the fighting and it's as intense uh, as ever, if not more so. So it's really difficult to give an exact number of, of people that have been lost during the fighting, not just because of how widespread and fast moving this is, but because neither side is really willing to release accurate details on the casualties. Uh, Laura, latest estimations from US intelligence suggest that the number is, is higher than we we probably think, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's so difficult because, as you say, neither side wants to give any official recorded estimate as to how many people have been lost from either side or indeed how many people have been injured. Now, US officials have been looking at the situation on the ground. They've been putting together satellite imagery, looking at reports from journalists who are on the ground, various social media posts and trying to piece together what has been happening on the ground and try to estimate how many lives may have been lost, how many injuries might have occurred as a result of the fighting in Ukraine. They say it could be as many as half a million people killed or wounded since 
since the start of the war. So that's a combined total, both Russia and Ukraine. And they've split it down a bit further for us, saying that they believe that Russian casualties sit at around 120,000 deaths, 170 to 180,000 people injured. And on the Ukrainian side, they estimate 70,000 people have been killed, 100 to 120,000 wounded. Now, obviously, that puts the number of injuries and deaths on the Russian side far greater than that uh, of the Ukraine side. But they say that in terms of boots on the ground and sort of military force, the Russians are sitting at around three to one compared to the Ukrainians. And it's not just military personnel, we should add, in in the, the deaths that we're estimating here. It's civilian deaths as well. And that's been a massive talking point when it comes to Russian war crimes that we've been discussing ever since this war really broke out. There's been a lot of civilians here that have, have lost their lives too. Yeah, absolutely. It's the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights who's given data on this more clearly. And that group is saying that 9,511 verified civilian deaths have taken place in Ukraine as of the 27th of August. So nearly 10,000 people have lost their lives there. Um, 8,174 of those took place in 2022. And they believe 1,337 civilians have been killed in Ukraine so far this year. So actually the losses, if we look at it, you know, year on year, looks to be less this year. But that's not really putting into context just how horrific it is on the ground for those that have been caught up in this fighting. As you say, those human rights abuses, war crimes uh, that have been or are being considered by international courts, the international landscape politically, it's really difficult to know exactly how many people have been harmed here. Yeah, it's staggering, isn't it? When you actually look into the numbers that are estimated by um, not Ukraine or Russia, but by countries who are looking uh, from the outside uh, within, it really is staggering. You see those pictures of destroyed buildings, destroyed schools. I've spoken to people who've been trapped inside hospitals that have been bombarded pretty much by Russian bombs. But, you know, it's not just in in Ukraine, is it? There have been newer kind of developments with Ukraine flying drones over Russia. And there's been a couple of instances of that recently, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Russia has said that there have been a number of drone strikes carried out in border regions, so between Russia and Ukraine, by Ukrainian forces, saying that there have been deaths as a result of that. Not many by comparison to what we've seen in Ukraine, but some deaths at least. And the question now really is whether this represents a new kind of push from Ukraine. Are they going to be looking to continue in this way, if indeed that has, has happened? Are they going to be using these drone strikes more frequently, more effectively, looking to bombard from the skies rather than fighting on the ground in the trenches on those battlegrounds where it's very protracted, where any gains are very slow, sort of minute in comparison to the sheer scale of uh, the nation that is controlled by Russia now. And so maybe this is a switch in tactics from Ukraine. And you mentioned um, the push there. So let's talk a little bit about that uh, counteroffensive, because it seems to have gone on the, the back burner in terms of topics of conversation of late. There's talks of Ukrainian forces pushing into the likes of Zaporizhia, uh, Kherson as well. There have been uh, advancements as well as uh, towards the Donbass. From reports that we've been able to see that tell a bit more of a true story than either Russia or Ukrainian intelligence, what are we seeing from those reports in terms of this counteroffensive? Well, we knew that Ukraine's military was going to be looking to push in the summer, trying to regain some of the land that had been lost to Russian 
uh, occupation. Obviously, there is the issue of Crimea as well. That was annexed by Russia in 2014. So we've seen sort of slow pushes by Ukraine to try and regain uh, some of those areas of land. Ukraine's foreign minister has said that Kyiv's actually liberated a village that is strategically important in Zaporizhia. Why? Because it's actually a push then to try to regain a sort of land bridge, if you want to call it, that could cut off Russian supply routes to and from Crimea. And that will be seen as a huge advantage for them. So a lot of this now is looking, it seems, at specific villages, towns, points within Ukraine that could be really effective in terms of cutting off Russian supplies, cutting off those communications routes, and then pushing back. But it is very difficult to tell exactly what's happening. And you're right, things have been quite quiet out of Ukraine, whether or not that's um, a specific decision by the government to try to reduce the amount of communications that's coming out, trying to reduce the intelligence perhaps that might be offered up to uh, the Russian offensive as well is difficult to work out. But Definitely, there is this ongoing push, slightly at least, by Ukrainian forces. And Kherson is is one of those cities, well, it's Ukraine's second city, um, uh, often described as a fortress as well. That's crucial for Ukrainian forces to keep hold of. And we've seen this to and froing, haven't we, from Russia and, and Ukraine over this area. And as you say, it needs to keep cities like this for it to be effective in, in, in the war that's ongoing. But talking of, of effectiveness as well, Ukraine is also set to get some uh, F-16s from uh, the Netherlands, Norway and Denmark. And this is something that they've been pushing for for a long time. You know, it, it wasn't long ago that we were talking about uh, Zelensky uh, closed the skies, as he was saying over and over again. Now, that didn't happen. But what we have seen is this progressive move to giving Ukraine more and more stronger weapons. We saw the tanks uh, and now we're seeing these F-16s as well. Yeah. And this is what President Zelensky has wanted. He's been pushing for further support from Western nations, from NATO allies, saying that he needed those jets and other fighter jets, not just the F-16s, in order to try to combat the Russian offensive effectively. He didn't want to have his troops on the ground, hand-to-hand combat, which some people have actually been comparing to World War One trench yeah. warfare, which is, if you can look at it like that, just seems... Well, it's awful. Yeah. That, that sort of image of people actually being in the trenches and fighting hand-to-hand. So having this armoury in the skies will be really fundamental to him being able to reduce casualties, reduce deaths, and also to take uh, the Russian troops by surprise. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly is returning from Beijing, where he held talks with his Chinese counterparts. In a video released on Twitter, he said he'd challenged China on issues such as Hong Kong, Xinjiang and Jimmy Lai. Let's listen to what else he said. Here's a very shouty James Cleverly who thought it would be best to record his important message in front of a jet engine. Let's listen. This trip is not just about that. It's also about finding ways where we can work together on things like the environment, 
making sure we can hand over our planet to future generations in a good state. It's about making sure that we prevent uh, nuclear proliferation. It's also about making sure that we address collectively both the opportunities and the challenges of AI and other technologies. Diplomacy matters. That's why I'm here. That's why I have these meetings for the benefit of the British people and the world as a whole. God, that audio is dreadful, yeah. isn't it? Um, but less of that. That's not the important part. <laughs> the important part is, is is the message and him being there. Just how important was this trip for, for Cleverly to go to Beijing and to talk to his counterparts? Well, it's the first time that I think a UK official has been in China for around five years. So actually getting that invitation will be seen as a bit of a coup for James Cleverly. We know that there is a really delicate relationship between the UK and China, not least because China is still the UK's fourth largest trading partner, but also, of course, because of the international uh, picture at the moment. China is building its strength. It has a good economy, albeit sort of waning since the uh, COVID pandemic. We know that there are issues, obviously, regarding Taiwan and that sort of sovereignty there, who might be in control of that island. And also then, of course, in terms of relationships with other nations around the world, support for the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which China is trying to distance itself from, but then also global security as well. There's been a number of issues in the UK that have been looked at, not just the presence of Huawei's 5G networks in the UK that was shut off by the United Kingdom government mm. after quite a long decision-making process. There's also the issue, of course, of human rights, which the UK needs to discuss, needs to talk about, and that many people are pushing for uh, the UK government to have a stronger stance against. So it's a very complicated picture. But I think what James Cleverly is looking at is trying to keep people close because it is the belief within the UK largely, that dialogue is better than simply shutting people off. That actually, if you can persuade people to come around to your way of thinking, talk about things openly, then that is better than having no conversation at all. Yeah, and you mentioned Taiwan there. So, so let's uh, let's talk about that. Um, how much on his mind do you think that situation is? Because an invasion from China to Taiwan probably isn't going to happen next year or the year after. But it's certainly something that is in the UK and people all over the world are extremely worried about because it's very tense there. So do you think that that situation is is really on his mind when it came to these talks? Yeah, absolutely. It's really tense there. It seems a bit of a flashpoint, really, the relationship between China and Taiwan and Taiwan and the rest of the world. And we've seen a number of officials from the UK, from the US, head to that island on a surprise visit to try to show support to Taiwan, try to say, you know, people are watching, that actually you do have friends uh, who have their eye on you and, and are watching China closely. But equally, they don't want to be uh, angering China too much and causing issues diplomatically on that sort of strand of things as well. And we know in terms of the UK, there have been pushes by previous defence secretaries to sort of push warships through the Taiwan Strait to try to re-establish and confirm that those waters are open. It's seen as a really important global trade route and navigation mm. route. But that angers China. So it's a really difficult thing to try to keep these two uh, on side, 
both of them with very different relationships with the UK government and the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a it's a massive balancing act, isn't it? This relationship between the UK and China, which has worsened somewhat o- o- over the years. When it comes to, to China having conversations with the UK, what's in it for them? Because we've seen them meeting with Western nations. Uh, you know, they've met with the US. Uh, they've met with uh, other governments uh, from uh, Europe across the past kind of year and a half or so. Are we seeing them trying to save face almost? What, what, why, why are they doing this? What's in it for them? It's a good question because actually China's power is, you know, relatively strong economically as they have these trade links with a lot of nations around the world. And so they have that sense of power there too. But I think the way that the world has shifted over the last two years with the invasion of Ukraine in particular, Mm. with a lot of scorn pushed onto those nations that have been supporting Russia, China's had to play this very, very carefully. They're trying to keep people on side, continue that dialogue, if you like. There's a lot of issues that need to be discussed in terms of national security, even global climate change, whereby nations need to work together. And also in terms of pandemics in the future as well. If there were to be another pandemic that emerged it would need global action, global cooperation in order to prevent that uh, extrapolation of illness, of potential death there. And so keeping people close is really important. And the world is shifting in terms of power balance. And so relationships are always going to be key when that happens. He also said in that video that he challenged his Chinese counterparts on various issues, uh, human rights. Uh, We could really talk for hours about what China is apparently supposed to have done, which it's probably done. Um, you've interviewed James Cleverly before. You've been in his presence. I'm not saying that you were your best mates with him and you know him inside out, but uh, from when you spoke to him, did you get the impression that he is the type of foreign secretary that could challenge his Chinese counterparts in the right way? It felt like when he was speaking, he was being clear. There wasn't a lot of waffle It was a message, of course, a UK government message, but it was delivered with a certain level of sincerity. I mean, I don't know him personally, obviously. I'm not his busy mate. But I imagine he would challenge it with sensitivity. And he has said, you know, that that was discussed, that national security will always come first. And ultimately, that will be the sort of priority for whatever foreign secretary is in power at whatever time the sanctity and security of the UK has to come first. Now, the Foreign Affairs Committee have been quite critical of the UK government approach, saying that it's not going far enough, it's not strong enough. They want more clout. But all discussions will come under this uh, sort of veil of having to be sensitive towards this relationship. Yeah, and this could be a really good first step towards building a better relationship with the likes of China, which, as you've mentioned, is is really important because of how massive it is um, on on the global stage in terms of uh, the economy and and foreign policy and all kinds of all kinds of things. Famously, uh, David Cameron was seen having a pint with uh, Xi Jinping. I think it was in 2015, wasn't it? Do you think we're likely to see Sakir Starmer with a, a pint of proper job uh, with his Chinese counterpart anytime soon? Well, that would depend on whether Keir Starmer wants to soften his approach towards China, right? So Keir Starmer has said uh, that he thinks there should be a harder, firmer approach to this relationship with China. So if there were to be a Labour government, would we see this kind of 
burgeoning relationship perhaps shut down even further? Who knows? Maybe when you're in power, you have to look at things slightly differently. You have to decide whether or not it is worth shutting off those communication channels or whether you need to keep some sort of relationship going in order to promote trade, to keep the economy running. Those kinds of things always come into firmer, sharper focus when you are having to run a country. But will we see him down the pub near Chequers with a cup of chips and a pint? I don't know. Will we? I think things have changed since 2015. Sounds good though, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty tasty. Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, also known as BRICS, met earlier this month for their annual get-together. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? Uh, Its point, according to Reuters, is to provide a platform for its members to challenge a world order dominated by the United States and its Western allies. The group's economic output is staggering, and it's about to get even bigger. That's because countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia, amongst others, have just been invited to join the club. Uh, Laura, I don't think many of us are surprised by these countries banding together, but just how big of a deal is this meeting, but also this expansion? Well, it's all about trying to shift power, right? Financially, but also perhaps politically, building those relationships. As I keep banging on about this episode, how important it is to have your pals quite close and maybe your enemies even a little bit closer. So this is about building a new squad, a new team to try to counter the current big G7 nations, I suppose, and trying to bolster the financial clout that these nations have in the world. Yeah, and China's a massive economy, um, as we've pointed out, and it's part of this group. I imagine they're going to be rubbing their hands together at the the thought of these countries joining its super top-secret club of very rich men, um, whereas uh, Joe Biden's going to be tearing his hair out, isn't he? Well, yeah, and we know that this is about growing rivalry with the United States. They're also trying to target the dollar as well, the US dollar, trying to shift trade towards local currencies and try to pull it away from the standard, which is, of course, the US dollar in terms of payments. Um, We know that various countries within this group have already agreed to, to push their imports and exports through their local currencies, taking away that sort of strength and power uh, from the United States. So there will be plenty of issues that Joe Biden is having to contend with here. And as you say, with China being such a huge economy, with other nations involved there as well, maybe if this group gets big enough, then it could be worth a whole heap uh, more than the current makeup. But who knows? And this is a kind of rival to the UN. It's not an official uh, block in the same way that the UN is, but it's still a rival. Um, What does the UN think of this? Has Antonio Guterres, has he had any comment, had anything to say about uh, this group and its expansion and, uh, and also the number of countries that still want to join BRICS? Well, yeah, I mean, he's said that it's clearly offering an alternative, effectively, that actually there needs to be a shift since the sort of current operational standard, which is that post-World War II scenario with NATO, the UN, these big Western countries banding together, that there is a push from China, there is a push from India and other nations that are looking to develop and to grow their economies. And so there needs to be something to represent that. And I think the message that he has put out basically says that this is that shift. 
And is this some kind of new world order that we're seeing come forward? Or uh, could the expansion of, of, of this group actually be some kind of hindrance towards it? You know, it's, it's relatively small at the moment um, and was when it was founded in, in 2009, I think it was, by Russia. Um, could its expansion be a hindrance? You know, more voices, more uh, opinions, more men's voices. And they don't like to agree with each other all the time, do they? Just look at India and China, for example. No, they don't. But it depends if they want to push political uh, sort of branches, like policies. What are they thinking about the war in Ukraine? Or if they're solely going to be looking at this as a financial prospect, you know, imports, exports, where, you know, how can they benefit one another, take commodities from different nations and grow their economies and strengthen their currencies. It's going to be interesting to look at. There is this bank that's been set up to allow these nations to take loans from this centralised financing pot rather than from the United States, and that will provide more power there. And then in terms of Africa, having these links is going to be really exceptional. They've been suffering because of the inflation uh, on the US dollar when they're importing and exporting goods. And so having a more localised, closer neighbour to take goods from will really benefit them. Now, to round us off, something absolutely terrifying. Uh, A woman from New South Wales, Australia, uh, had been complaining of forgetfulness and depression, and so quite rightly decided to go and see someone, Laura. Um, But what happened next, to be quite honest, has left me awake at night, uh, so much so that I don't think I'm going to be able to get through telling this story, so I'm going to let you go ahead and tell it. This is one of my absolute nightmares. Whenever I go swimming in some sort of open water Mm. area, I'm concerned about things like leeches, anything that might, you know, get onto me or into me, which is not ideal. But this is just horrific. So a 64-year-old English woman living in New South Wales in Australia went to the doctors feeling unwell. She had abdominal pain, uh, other symptoms, being sick. And doctors couldn't work out what was going on with her. So this was more than a year ago now. Mm. Eventually, as she said, she was experiencing forgetfulness, depression. And so she was transferred to another hospital that could specialise in looking at this. They gave her an MRI scan and they noticed something at the front of her brain, in one of the frontal lobes. Mm. And they couldn't work out what this was, decided to go ahead and operate anyway. Mm. And when they got in there... They found this squiggly red line thing, pulled it out, and it started moving. (sighs) They said they'd never seen anything like this before. Turns out it was a worm. Yeah. It's outrageous, isn't it? It A worm in your brain. I don't... I don't even want to think about it, Chris. Also, also, it had to be Australia, didn't it? If (laughs) if you'd have told me the story and said, guess where this happened, I would have, 100%, I would have got it first time because everything in that country wants to flipping kill you. Spiders, Spiders, snakes... Brain worms. Brain now. worms. What you know? It's 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 everywhere. Yeah. But, you know this. But this is the first time it's been found in humans, isn't it? It's is it normally in snakes? Yeah. So this is a, a kind of worm, a nematode, that's normally found within the digestive tract of the snake, and people have obviously been trying to work out how this worm then got into this woman's poor woman's head, and the current thinking is that perhaps she'd eaten some kind of vegetation that had snake excrement on it that might have had the eggs of a worm in it. She'd eaten it 
And then because she was taking some sort of immunosuppressant uh, drugs, that worm might not have been killed as a part, as a reason mm. of that by your body and it managed to travel into her brain. Well, it's a good advert to not eat grass that or leaves, I guess. <laughs> but that's the weird thing. Who's, who's going around eating grass? Is she it's a forager? A pre- I mean, it's... That was the thing that got me. It's like, okay, it makes sense. You might mm. have picked it up. But who's going around eating random vegetation? Unless it was a snake that had been on a vegetable patch. Yeah. Well, who knows? The, I guess the message is, don't go to Australia. The weirdest thing, I thought, was that they took this worm off to be examined. It carried on wiggling for about three days before they sliced it up to take a look at the genetic sort of properties yeah that's gross isn't it yeah uh, laura let's leave it there forget it happened and never talk about it ever again Agreed? Yeah, right yeah fine good uh, and that's the end of this edition of the bunker global laura thanks for joining me and sharing your wisdom with us all you're welcome listeners did you enjoy this episode well if you did i've got some news we release episodes just like this every friday and not only are there well over a thousand others that we've already recorded there's also a new episode of the bunker every day remember you can get them before everyone else as well as exciting new merchandise for backers coming soon but only when you back us on patreon thanks for listening i'm chris jones reporting from the bunker The Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones and Laura Makinishawood. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs>